Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Quick little announcement at the beginning of this podcast. Going forward, starting with this podcast, I am going to try to keep my podcasts to 20 minutes or less. Now, the main reason that I'm going to be doing this is we've been analyzing the podcast, and it seems like most people listen to about 17 minutes of my podcast. It really doesn't matter how long they are. It's kind of like 17 minutes is about all the Peter Schiff that my audience could take. Now, maybe that's just the intention span of my audience. I would have thought it would have been a little longer than that, but compared to the average American, I think the fact that people are able to listen to 17 minutes straight of economics and the markets and things like that, that probably shows that my audience is overall uh, pretty intelligent. But, you know, when I do these podcasts, sometimes I save a lot of good stuff for the end. I mean, there's a lot of things that I want people to get, a lot of information. And if people are, are tuning out after 17 minutes, then I'm just wasting my breath. So I'm going to try to do more uh, shorter podcasts as opposed to these 30, 40-minute podcasts where a lot of people aren't listening. Also, you know, I always put some advertisements at the end of these podcasts, too. And probably nobody is sticking around for those. So I may drop that and change the format and start adding some some commentary about Euro-Pacific capital or shift gold or gold money or Euro-Pacific bank or some type of promotional material at the beginning of the podcast where people might actually hear about it than rather leaving it at the end when there's pretty much nobody left listening based on the numbers. So let me get into what I want to talk about. First of all, it's the retail apocalypse, which I have been talking about on this podcast that from my perspective, and not just my perspective, I think in reality, the retail sector is in worse shape, worse shape today than it was in 2008 during and immediately following the financial crisis. And, you know, we got a lot of bad news uh, from the retailers this week, including today alone, we got uh, JCPenney and Nordstrom's 
horrible sales from these companies. And we had other retailers earlier in the week that came out with, with bad news. A Kohl's department store came out, weak earnings, a Dillard's. And if you look at some of the stocks, like Kohl's, Kohl's is at 36 and a half is where it closed. That stock was 75, 80 bucks was the high uh, summer of uh, 2015. So what, down 60% or so. Dillard's, which is at a 52-week low today at just under 47. That was over $120. Uh, more than a 50% decline. What's that? 60% or more. Uh, Macy's was down another 3% today. New 52-week low. Macy's is at 23.60. Macy's was like a $70 stock summer of 2015. These are huge markdowns for these retailers. Look at uh, Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's down almost 11% today on the bad news. 41.20. Nordstrom's was an $80 stock. That's probably the best performer. That's the first one that's down less than 50% from its high. But JCPenney probably is going to get the prize for the biggest decline overall. I mean, this stock's been falling for a long time. I'm only looking at a chart that goes back to 2007. Back then, it was 80 bucks. Uh, JCPenney closed today at $4.55. I mean, it looks like that company is going bankrupt. And, you know, a lot of people are very complacent because they say, oh, it's no big deal because it's all about e-commerce, right? Everybody's just shopping online. Look at Amazon. Amazon stock hit a new 52-week high today, all-time record high, not just a 52-week high. Jeff Bezos on the way to being the richest man in the world, and it probably looks like he's going to make it. I mean, Amazon right now is at 961 uh, I got to take a look at Microsoft was down today. I mean, that's number two, number one, right? Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. And I think it probably makes sense that Jeff Bezos is going to pass him probably sometime soon. But that's creating a lot of complacency when it comes to the retailers because people are like, oh, no big deal, right? People are just shopping online. Well, people are shopping online, but the incremental gains in online shopping, even though percentage-wise it's pretty big, you're starting with a small percentage of total retail sales happen online. So the amount of sales that we're gaining online is not equal to what we're losing in brick and mortar. So a lot of sales are being lost even as more people are doing their shopping on the internet. But of course, another reason that people are shopping on the internet other than just the convenience of not leaving your house when you're doing your shopping, is the fact that the average American shopper is broke, right? They can barely afford to buy the stuff that they're buying. In fact, most people are buying stuff that they can't afford. They're just buying it anyway, and they're using a credit card. So I think that American consumers are being extra cost conscious. They're doing everything they can to save a buck. And the internet allows you to do that because, you know, there is a certain joy uh, of shopping in a store. You know, I think certainly a lot of women, maybe more so than men, you know, like shopping uh, and they like trying things on and, and seeing things and touching things before they buy them. And they like the immediacy of buying something that day and then you have it. You don't have to wait for it to arrive in the mail. You see it, you pick it up, you have it, right? So there is a value there, but a lot of Americans aren't willing to pay for it because they don't have the money, you know, and so they can't pay for the pleasure of being waited on by a sales 
clerk who's helping you and, 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 and with your shopping experience. So they, they have to forego some of those pleasantries because they don't have the money. They just they just shop online. And of course, companies like Amazon, they're not even necessarily trying to make a profit on these sales. They're just trying to sell more because they're trying to grab a bigger and bigger share of a shrinking market because retailing is a shrinking market because Americans pocketbooks are shrinking. Their paychecks are shrinking, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. That's what's going to happen. But one of the interesting things that you know perplexes me and nobody asks these questions because retailing is in trouble. And it's not just, you know, the clothing stores, these department stores, but it's restaurants, too, that are having a hard time uh, in in this economy. They're losing a lot of money. Now, clearly, part of the problem is the increasing minimum wage, right? A lot of these retailers employ uh, low-wage workers, minimum-wage workers, and the cost of doing that is going up. But what's more interesting about employment is why are retailers adding so many jobs when their business is so awful. I mean, these stocks are collapsing, yet they continue until the most recent jobs numbers. I mean, we finally got uh, some recent numbers where we were losing retail jobs. But if you go back to the beginning of this recovery, so-called recovery, right? Retailing has been responsible for 10% of all the jobs gained since, I think, December of 2009 until today. 10% of all the jobs that we have created have been in retailing. Retail employment right now is at an all-time record high. We added about a million and a half retail jobs during this recovery. Why would that be? Employing people is getting more expensive based on the increase in minimum wage. And retailers are losing money. Their sales are collapsing. Why aren't they firing people? Why aren't they trying to shore up their bottom lines by letting people go? Now, One explanation is they're about to, right? They've just, for some reason, they've been holding on to workers, just hoping that the customers would come back, right? And now they're about to lay them off. And in some cases, that might be partially true. Maybe there have been some people that have been reluctant to let go, and they're about to get let go. But I think the other explanation is what I was saying all along during this so-called recovery, was a lot of the jobs were a function of the switch, from full-time employment to part-time employment. And my guess is that a lot of these retailers have been reducing hours worked uh, during this entire period of time because they have been substituting uh, part-time workers uh, for full-time workers, principally because of the requirement to provide health insurance, which is an expensive thing to do. Now, you know, ironically, if this Republican replacement plan actually passes, which I still think the odds are that it won't, because I do think that the, re- the Republicans in the Senate are going to leave the House Republicans, you know, like stranded uh, out on a, on a ledge there because they went out on the limb and they went for something that politically is unpopular. Right. When, the minute you give people free health care, it's hard to take it away. Right. This is really what this all is about is about forcing your insurance company to buy your health insurance. Right. I've said that this is not insurance. This is I want to pay my medical bills through my insurance company. I just want to give my insurance company a little bit of money and have them spend a lot of money on my doctors and my hospitals, right? So the minute all of a sudden you've got this right to free health care masquerading as insurance, it's very difficult to take it away, right? It's, if you voted against Obamacare in the first place, that's not as bad 
is voting to get rid of it because then your opponent can run these ads that, oh, so-and-so, he voted to take away your health care, to take away this, just to cut taxes for the rich, right? Because now that Obamacare was paid for by taxes on the rich, and now we're going to get rid of it, the commercials are, he took away your health care in order to give a tax break to millionaires and billionaires. It doesn't sound good. Nobody wants to run against that. And so it's probably not even going to pass the, the Senate. But if it did, and employers no longer had to provide health insurance, that could cause the reverse. That could cause a lot of employers to get rid of a lot of the part-time workers and bring back full-time workers, which would mean lots of layoffs when it comes to the non-farm payroll number. Uh, And so it would be the opposite of what happened uh, when we were creating all the part-time jobs. I wonder if anyone will make an excuse, uh, you know, because they certainly didn't point it out on the way up to say, hey, ignore all these jobs. They're part-time. I wonder if the people that ignored it on the way up will try to make an excuse for it on the way down. But nobody really seems to look at the dichotomy between all these jobs that we've supposedly created in an industry that is, you know, on the mat and maybe going down for the count. And, you know, people talk about a bankruptcy of a JCPenney. JCPenney has been around for over 100 years. I mean, they started in 1902. And now what they're gonna they're gonna go broke. I mean, this is an iconic company. I remember when I was in college at UC Berkeley, I was taking accounting courses. And I remember that the balance sheet and income statements that I used in uh, my, you know, introductory course to accounting, whatever business administration, I forget the name of the course, but it was your basic first course. I remember that the balance sheet and income statement that we used to study was JCPenney. That was the company that the professor picked that we were using as an example to learn how to read the balance sheet and understand the components and, and what went into it. I mean, JCPenney was the company that we were using. And here they are now, you know, look, looking like they're ready to go out of business. But if you also think about the labor aspect of this, these companies employ a lot of people. And they also employ a lot of entry-level people. I mean, one of the good things about retailing is it's one of the places where people can get their first job. Now, the government's making that a lot harder now with the minimum wage. Uh, But still, you know, some of the lowest-paying jobs are in retail. And so that's one of the first ladders to climb your way up to a better job. Companies like Amazon, they don't provide that many entry-level jobs. I mean, They provide a lot of work for robots, right? It's a very automated business at at Amazon. And there's probably a lot of higher end jobs there for people in IT or programming or those type of jobs. So people can move up to the Amazon job. But where's the entry level job? I mean, we're going to be destroying a lot of these type of jobs as all these retailers are going out of business. And they're not just being driven out of business by the Internet. It's not just because we have advancements in technology, because again, I think a lot of people prefer the human interaction. I think people like to go into a store and and shop around and buy things, but they just can't afford it. You know, and the government is making it so expensive to run an actual business that the typical American who's loaded up with debt and underemployed, you know, the the internet is the only place that 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 he can afford to shop. And so this is what's going on. And you know, Amazon, I don't know if you've seen any, any reports on these new stores that Amazon is thinking about coming out with, Amazon Go. 
And I think it's a great idea. And I think these stores are going to be very successful. But what they are is I think they're supermarkets. I don't know if it's going to go beyond that or grocery stores. But basically, you walk into the store and there's a scanner that, you know, scans your cell phone or something and, and knows you're there. You're an Amazon customer. It has your Amazon account. And then you just go and you shop. You, you pick things off the shelves that you want. And as you pick them up and put them into your bag, then it just adds it to your bill. It just it has cameras all around the store and it, and it has sensors and it sees when you when you uh, pick something up. And actually, if you decide to put it back that you don't want it, it, it subtracts it. So it doesn't count it if you pick it up, look at it and then put it back on the shelf. But only if you pick it up and put it in your shopping bag. Uh, it gets counted. And so you go around aisle to aisle, you pick the things that you want. And as soon as you have the things that you want, you just walk out the store. You're done. You don't have to check out. You're, you're, whatever you bought is already charged to your Amazon account. And then there's a receipt that's emailed to you automatically for everything that you just bought. So there's no cashiers at all in that store. I guess you just need a security guard just to make sure nobody runs in, steals a bunch of stuff. Although if you did that, it'd all be caught on camera. And so they'd probably send it right to the, the police station. So but I think you just need people to stock the shelves. Although eventually Amazon will have robots doing that. So we're just, you know, knocking away all of these entry level jobs. Why? Because government is going to make it that much more expensive to employ people. I mean, yes, nobody likes waiting on lines for checkout. But why is that? You know, you go to a supermarket sometimes and you'll see like a dozen cash registers, but only two or three of them actually have people working. The rest of them are empty. Why don't they have a cashier at every register? Because it's too expensive. The government makes it too expensive. If there was no minimum wage, you could have a high school kid at every single cash register and there would be no line. The same thing happens all over the place. You go to a a bank or if you still go inside a bank or you go to the airport. I mean, anytime you go someplace, a car rental place, you'll always see that hardly any of the registers actually have a human being. They're mostly empty. Why don't we have a person at every one? Because the government makes it too expensive. So as the cost of hiring goes up, the demand for hiring goes down. The government forces people to economize on hiring. Now, we don't want that. We want people hiring as many people as possible, taking as many chances as possible, creating as many opportunities as possible. But when you tax the hell out of employers and then you you give the employee a weapon that he can use to crush his employer, which is called a lawsuit, meaning, hey, you employ me and Hey, if I don't really like the job environment, if there's anything stressful about it, if somebody harasses me, if somebody makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm going to sue you. And if you don't promote me, well, I might sue you. If you fire me, I'll probably sue you. It'll be for sexual discrimination, racial discrimination, sexual orientation, whatever it is. When you do that, You just turn employers into defense mechanisms against hiring. I need to minimize my risks. I need to minimize my liability. And so I need to minimize my employment. So this is what's going on. But Wall Street can just be very dismissive about this and very complacent and just chalk it all up to, you know, hey, this is just automobile putting the buggy whip manufacturer out of business. This is not what's happening. This is a sign of real problems in the U.S. economy. In fact, today, we got the macroeconomic surprise index that was down to a one-year low. 
Yet, yet despite this, you've got these Fed officials out there. Yet another guy out there today. Yep, we're going to raise rates two more times because everything is is looking great. Well, everything is not looking great. But, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe they're going to raise rates two times. Maybe they're still going to raise rates in June, even though the probability now is is notching back down after we got more weak economic data. But, you know, I want to say again about the whole idea about my being wrong. Uh, because I see people, a lot of people making a big deal about that. Oh, Peter Schiff, now he admits he's wrong, right? Because, look, the Fed raised rates, and he was saying they weren't going to raise rates. And, you know, the Fed went out of its way. Every time they talked about raising rates, they never said, we're going to raise rates, right, no matter what. They always basically made it conditional. We will raise rates as long as the economy evolves the way we expect, as long as we're right about our economic forecast, as long as the economy grows as much as we think, well, then we're going to raise rates. So I always believe that because they put that qualifying language there, that they did it for a reason. Because I knew all along that they were way overestimating growth. I knew the economy would be much weaker than they were forecasting. And so I thought that they would use that weakness as an excuse not to raise rates. Because obviously raising rates is going to be problematic in an economy this levered up. And I thought the Fed knew that, which is why they left that language in there, to give themselves an out. Because in reality, what they should have been saying is we're going to raise interest rates no matter what. Because they're too low. They have to go up, even if the economy is weaker than we thought, even if unemployment actually rises, even if inflation as the CPI measures it doesn't go up, we've got to raise rates. We just can't keep them down here because these artificially low interest rates are doing damage to the economy. They are distorting decision making, resource asset allocation, risk taking. We need to take away this punch bowl because it's been there for a long time. That's not what they said. They specifically said if the economy is as strong as we think, we will raise rates. So that was one of the reasons that I was so confident that they wouldn't do these rate hikes. Now they did them anyway. But the data supports what I was saying. The data is awful. And the Fed certainly could have used that weak data uh, as a reason not to raise rates. Now they haven't. Now, of course, they barely raised them. They haven't raised them very much. But they're still pretending they're going to raise them more. And I talked on my last podcast, and I tried to come up with various reasons, excuses, as to you know, why the Fed might do that. So I'm not going to repeat them here. I mean, if, go listen to it. I don't know if I, if I did it in the first 20 minutes or not. And here I know, I'm looking at the clock. I'm already over 20 minutes. So I guess I have a hard time talking uh, for less than 20 minutes, even if uh, people can't, can't listen. But I wanna, I'm going to wrap this up, just talk again about the markets, because the Dow Jones was down this week, right? Not a lot, but a little bit. But meanwhile, the foreign markets continued to gain up again in general on the week, despite a slight rise in the dollar. Even in U.S. dollar terms, uh, foreign markets gained again. And so the, the divergence, right, the, the gap between the performance internationally and the performance domestically continues to widen. I think that trend, again, is going to continue to accelerate in the months ahead, in the years ahead. This is just early on, right? So this is the time, again, if you haven't added to your account with me, this is the time to do it before the outperformance gets any greater, uh, because I think the longer you wait, the more expensive it's going to be to invest abroad, and especially once the dollar starts to go down. Now, another interesting divergence, gold was also off a little bit. This week, not a lot, but gold stocks rose. Gold stocks had a pretty nice week. I mean, not a phenomenal week, but they were up nicely. 
uh, despite the fact that gold went down. So now we're starting to see the divergence working the other way. Remember, it was gold stocks not going up when bullion was that, you know, kind of started the, the correction. Well, here now you have gold stocks going up despite the fact that gold itself went down. I think these stocks, again, are looking very, very good. Uh, and technically now we could be getting a good buy signal on, uh, on the gold stocks as well. And I'll finish up, you know, I'll just mention Bitcoin one last time if anybody's still listening. And of course, yep, I saw Bitcoin got almost to 1900. And I think it got, you know, 1880, 1890. I'm not sure the exact high, but it got very close to 1900. Now it's back below 1700 as I'm recording this. It's 1692. So lots of volatility there. I mean, you know, we've had a base already a 10% drop from a huge run, huge run, right? Because 1690 is still a very, very high price. But again, a lot of people out there want to say, oh, Peter Schiff was wrong on Bitcoin because look how high the price is. Again, you can't disprove me that I think this is a bubble and it's not going to work by pointing to the fact that the bubble got bigger and therefore saying I'm wrong. I never said the bubble couldn't get bigger. Of course it can get bigger. Now, can Bitcoin make a new high? Sure. Will it make a new high? Probably, right? It'll probably get back above 1900. It'll probably get above 2000, but it might not, right? Because eventually it's going to collapse. But so far, every time the stock has pulled back from its highs, every time it's done that, it's made a new high. So if you bought the pullback, if you bought the dip, you made money. It's worked every time, and it's going to work every time until it doesn't. The problem is you don't know when it's not going to work, but eventually it's not going to work, and a lot of people are going to get caught holding the bag. Now, you know, the other problem with it, though, is you've got this you know, lottery-type mentality out there because the gains that a lot of people think they're going to make on this, I mean, people have these astronomical projections for where they think Bitcoin is ultimately going to go. And so, you know, people think, oh, if I have a hundred bucks worth, I could be a millionaire. And so you've got that dynamic out there, which is also feeding this. And to some extent or to a large extent, when people buy a lottery ticket, they actually expect to lose money, but they're just buying the ticket on the on the chance that they might win. And since the payoff is so big, they're 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 gonna they're gonna take a shot. But I think most people buying Bitcoin expect to make money. They think there's a chance that they might lose money, but they actually believe that they're going to make a fortune on their Bitcoin. So that creates an even bigger speculative aspect to this bubble. But ultimately, the bigger the bubble, the more money that gets lost when the bubble pops.